Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a quick uh, quick little joke that I made up. Why was the Olympic gold medal gymnast avoiding calls from his credit card company? Because he had outstanding balance. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the week's best culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from musician Greta Klein, a.k.a. Frankie Cosmos. That'll break the ice. You can catch her this weekend at the Pitchfork Music Festival in Chicago. Coming up, we'll hear from another great musician of the moment, Mitski. Plus, at long last, the great Alan Alda, oh, yeah. a personal hero of mine, is here to answer your etiquette questions. The team behind the hit sports podcast, Podcast 30 for 30, teach us how to cheat at cards, and comedy duo the Lucas Brothers show us how to cheat at driver's tests. But first, as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Donald Trump Jr. is speaking out about his decision to take a meeting with a Russian lawyer who promised dirt on Hillary Clinton. In baseball, the American League has claimed this year's All-Star Games. Researchers have recorded one of the biggest icebergs reported to be more than seven times the size of New York City. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Rehan Harmansi. She is an editor at Topic, a new storytelling studio. Check it out online. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about umbrella sharing. Oh. Like two people, like romantically, <laughs> like walking down the street. That sounds nice. nice. <laughs> well, maybe more accurately, are we talking about the perils of umbrella sharing? Okay. Um, sharing culture hit big in China over the past couple of years. Think of bike sharing. Mm. Um, but this particular experiment in sharing did not go so well. Let's back up for a second. The people are sharing umbrellas, like people rent them. Is that the yeah, idea? think city bike only for umbrellas. So you have these public stands where umbrellas are lined up, and for a small fee, you can access one. But almost all of their three hundred thousand umbrellas have been stolen. Oh, you know. Oh no! Why? If all the other sharing services are working, how come umbrellas disappear? Well, think about it. Like when you get an umbrella, it's raining. It stops raining. The easiest thing to do with an umbrella is just take it home. But who, when they take an umbrella home, is going to remember to return it to an umbrella sharing stand? It turns out almost no one. <laughs> I see. Well, and that gets to the point. The reason I'd want to rent an umbrella is because I'm always forgetting my umbrella. <laughs> So yes. why wouldn't I forget the umbrella I rented? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can lose upwards of 15 umbrellas over the course of a month. <laughs> I guess I would just lose 15 of an umbrella-sharing <laughs> app's umbrellas. I'm, I'm trusting you guys. This all sounds right to me, but I live in Los Angeles, so uh, umbrellas are kind of a, a fictional... Yeah, I was going to say, oh. Rico, for you, maybe think sunglasses. <laughs> I see, yeah. You forget those. You leave them behind. I understand. I mean, the part they didn't seem to think through so much is when someone doesn't replace it, there's no fee. Oh, so they don't penalize you for forgetting the umbrella. Yes. just some bad planning going on yeah. it, <laughs> among the entrepreneurs here. Yeah. The most amazing thing, though, might be that the creator of this program is actually tripling down, putting in three times as much money and buying new umbrellas. It's just wow. going to make it work somehow. Even if the company doesn't work, people are just going to like this guy. <laughs> They're like, we get three umbrellas. What a generous dude. <laughs> Rehan Harmansi, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now time for a cocktail umbrella. Once again, we tell you a true tale from history, then challenge a bartender to capture its essence in cocktail form. It's like history's a rain gutter, channeling a downpour of booze. First, the history part. 63 <laughs> years ago this month, the United Kingdom marked the end of an era. And gladly, Michelle Philippi tells the tale. On July 4th, 1954, while Americans celebrated their independence by gorging on hot dogs, the British celebrated being allowed 
to gorge on hot dogs. That day, the UK officially ended 14 years of food rationing imposed at the dawn of World War II. Back then, German subs attacked ships bringing food into Great Britain. Pretty awful, considering it's an island nation that imported two-thirds of its food supply. To equally distribute what food there was, every Brit got a book of ration coupons, redeemable at their local grocers for staple foods. An adult's average dairy ration included two ounces of butter and cheese, a few pints of milk, and one egg per week. Pregnant women fared a little better. They got first dibs on fruit and twice as many eggs. Meanwhile, though, the government urged folks to grow their own vegetables and educated the public about proper nutrition. In fact, some Brits, especially the poor, ate more healthily than they had before the war. Even so, when the Germans finally surrendered, Brits were ready to feast like the good old days. But rationing dragged on for years. The war had almost bankrupted the country, and imports were expensive. So it wasn't till the mid-50s, nearly a decade later, that the last ration was lifted on meat. Wartime queues, which fast became a feature of the British way of life, are about to become a memory. Meat, the last food on ration, has been freed after 14 years. It was understandably a day of joy. An association of housewives partied in Trafalgar Square. People buried their ration books in mock funerals. And in a public ceremony, the Minister of Fuel set his on fire. Let's just hope that the ration book has none of the qualities of that proverbial phoenix. So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve along with it. I am on the line with Jason Nicoley of Bird of Smithfield. That is a bar located in the venerable Smithfield Meat Market in central London, which is a spot that was, of course, hugely affected by the rationing. Jason, you heard the history. What drink did that inspire you to make? Well, it inspired us to make the Butcher's Bloody Mary, a spin on a Bloody Mary. Now, you had this on the menu already, is that right? Yeah, it's actually something um, my grandfather concocted back in the 30s. And he had a hotel just outside London. and They had a illicit pork under the radar pigs, if you see what I mean. <laughs> And having tried a Clamato Bloody Mary, which is made with clam juice sure. in Canada, he was like, I should do something similar. So he started steeping his vodka with smoked pork. So he had illicit pork because meat was rationed. He wasn't allowed to have this meat? Exactly. You would have to declare all meat and all livestock. Sure. And he would make this little spin on this Clamato Bloody Mary that he tried in Canada. It sounds delicious, but it's also kind of funny because it's kind of a reverse prohibition. In America, you know, we prohibited alcohol. Yeah. Over there, you could have the alcohol, but not the meat. Not the meat, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about this drink. So you have in it this vodka steeped with, with meat. Yeah. And we muddle some coriander, which I think you call cilantro. Oh, yeah. And we muddle some parsley in a glass with some lemon juice and Worcestershire sauce and sriracha and a bit of salt. Okay, so that's the kind of gardeny part of the Bloody Mary, all that vegetable stuff in there? Exactly. And 50 mils of pork-infused vodka. Okay. And it sounds awful, but it's actually really good. <laughs> I've, I've had, actually, meat-infused alcohol. It, it works. Exactly. And it's a no-brainer. And yeah, we serve it in a big old dimpled glass jug and then a few sprigs of parsley sticking out the top obviously filled up with tomato juice. 
I mean, you can't have too many of them because it's like a meal <laughs> in itself, you know. So it's nothing like the situation that you had back in the day. You yeah. can just pound as many of these as you like. Exactly. All the food groups are covered, you know. And, Brendan, there are also great stories about the day the Brits stopped rationing sweets. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apparently, businesses handed out hundreds of pounds of lollipops. One candy factory just opened its doors and gave everyone free candy all day. Yes. Apparently. And so began the golden age of British dentistry. We now (laughs) now can trace it, trace the origins. Uh, People, we have drink recipes sweet and savory on our website. Ah, yes. Check them out, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the soundtrack in which a great musician DJs your dinner party. And here with song suggestions is Mitski Miyawaki, who puts out records as simply Mitski. She's known for emotional, lyrically complex tunes about everything from romance to race. And her 2016 album Puberty 2 wound up on best of the year lists from AV Club and Rolling Stone. She's on tour now. Here she is with a party playlist for people who don't party. Hi, everyone. My name's Mitski. That's spelled M-I-T-S-K-I. And I don't host many parties because I'm anal retentive, and so I need to control everything, and it stresses me out. But if I were to have a dinner party, this would be my playlist. So my first song is Caravan by Duke Ellington. It starts with just drums, and it's kind of a mysterious beginning, and then suddenly Duke Ellington jumps in on the piano. So for college, I went to a music conservatory that has a jazz department, and I hated everyone in the jazz department. Well, it wasn't that I hated the people, it's just I didn't like the bro-y culture where, like, everyone was trying to one-up each other on their jazz knowledge. So I associated that with jazz itself, and I stopped listening to it. But then, after college, I actually realized that's just conservatory culture. It's not necessarily jazz itself. I like this at the beginning of playlists usually because it helps start things off. It sets a mood, which I think is important during a dinner party. It's important to get everyone kind of feeling lively and talkative. And I think I chose music that encourages that. The second track I chose is Smooth by Santana featuring Rob Thomas, often mistaken as by Rob Thomas featuring Santana. Everyone knows it, and really everyone loves it. I think it's kind of an icebreaker where someone hears it playing and they go, oh, smooth, and then people sing along or just start talking about it. I don't know. I think it's a good song. (laughs) Also, my name in Japanese means ocean moon. And there's a line in that song that says, just like the ocean under the moon. So I was like, oh my God, that's me. That's me. Yeah, 
During our dinner party, we are feeling nostalgic, maybe talking about other music from that era, like Britney Spears's Oops, I Did It Again video. It's just fun to sneak in those old hits from the early 2000s and late 90s. The next song on my playlist is Quizás, Quizás, Quizás by Sarah Montiel. Siempre que te pregunto. This song was sung by Sarah Montiel in the movie Noches de Casablanca from 1963. Because it's a movie version, there's kind of a lot of dramatic pauses in it. Quizás, quizás. It is a little risky to choose as a dinner party soundtrack because of those pauses. I would hate to be playing it and then there's that split moment of weird silence in the air. But it's sort of melodramatic and I'm all for melodrama. I love that. In heightened moments of emotion, I think a lot of things reveal themselves that you don't really see or feel during normal life. You see more color, you hear more, you, you, you taste more. I think you just feel more alive. I would never play my own music at my own dinner party. I have not reached that level of self-confidence and self-love yet. I would like to think that one of my friends at the party was trying to be funny and played my music. So that's when Fireworks is playing and I rush to the iPod to try to stop it ASAP. Well, I'm fundamentally introverted, so when I go to parties, I need to give myself breaks or I end up just ending the night really, truly exhausted. So maybe the song Fireworks can represent that moment for some individual in the party who kind of needs to take an extra long bathroom break and like go into someone's medicine cabinet to see, you know, what kind of illnesses they have. <laughs> Dinner Party soundtrack from Mitski. She's on tour now with a stop in L.A. next week at the mega music festival called FYF. All right, we're going to take a break, but in just a minute, TV and science star Alan Alda will be here to tell us what stories do to our brains and when it's okay to punch someone. It's true. And comedy duo the Lucas Brothers explain why we should never let them give us a ride. When the Dinner Party download continues.
Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, Wall Street Journal food editor Beth Cracklauer introduces Rico to Polish food nirvana. Mm. And the makers of the ESPN podcast 30 for 30 tell us about the unassuming woman who took sweet revenge on casinos. But first... Let's learn some etiquette. All right. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is Mr. Alan Alda. He is, of course, beloved for starring as Hawkeye Pierce in what's widely considered one of the best TV shows of all time, MASH. He was a regular on another great show, The West Wing, and he hosted another great show, the PBS series Scientific American Frontiers, for over a decade. More germane to our conversation today, he helped found the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Its goal is to help scientists communicate better with the public, and his new book is about how we can all communicate better. It is called If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? And Alan, it's an honor to have you on the show. Hi, thank you. It's going to be hard uh, reading each other's faces since we're in studios around the world. We are speaking to you from a different studio. No, I, I can imagine your face. We're so in... <laughs> this won't be a very long conversation. Oh, no. <laughs> you in... can see how vacant I am from there. This is upsetting. <laughs> Look, I'm going to hop right into your book. You talk about your how your obsession with communication started at the dentist's office. Yeah. And it wasn't laughing gas. Can you can you share with us what happened there? And, and... I had to have a front tooth taken out. And he, the only explanation he gave me before he stuck the knife in my face was, <laughs> now there will be some tethering. And tethering. I said, Te- what, tethering? Tethering. Well, he said, what do you mean tethering? He said, tethering, tethering. He started screaming. And that's all he said. It's like he was impatient with me because I didn't know mm. what this common English word had to do with my mouth. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And what it turned out was he cut a little tissue up there that kept me from smiling normally. Yeah. Yeah. You're a man who needs your face. I needed to smile sometimes. And <laughs> then he sent me a letter designed to keep me from suing him. So he really was like non-communicative from the word go. Sure. So this all, of course, makes you think maybe these guys should learn how to communicate better with people. And you begin your book with that anecdote because it's a story. And stories, as you also discuss in the book, are a fundamental way brains organize information. Why is that? I have no Who knows? I don't know. I, I always <laughs> love it when somebody discovers something in science and says, and this makes sense because... Surely when we were prehistoric, we, we needed it for this or that. But you, you can make anything up that goes with that story because there's nobody around to test it on. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But what, what do stories do that, you know, captivate well, us? Well, what they do, according to scientists I've interviewed who use uh, functional MRIs to study the storytelling encounter, is they actually seem to sync up the brain in a real way. The brain of the person telling the story, say, for instance, of a, the story of a movie, when he tells it to someone else, her brain lights up or is activated in a very similar way to his brain as he tells the story. I think you could say we synchronize through story. That sounds almost science fiction almost, like we're mind-melding. That's what I love about science. It's more fun than science fiction to me. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting, yeah. though. You you divide your time between two very different worlds, the world of art and acting and of science. If you had to choose between the two of them, which would you pick? Well, I'm I'm an actor and a writer and... I don't think I could really be happy without doing art. But, you know, teaching is very similar to that. The more I run workshops and the more I try to help people understand what we're doing, the more I realize that it's a very similar process and it's almost as satisfying. Not quite. (laughs) 
But I did a, <laughs> I acted in a web series with Louis C.K. Yeah, Horace and Pete. Uh, yeah, and I had such a good time, and I re, I respected that material so much. I haven't yeah. wanted to do anything that's been offered to me since then because it didn't seem to match up. So I guess maybe somehow that's the answer to your question. Yeah, as it, you're, you'd rather be yeah. an actor as long as the material is good. Yeah, right. That kind of matters. <laughs> well, now we, we are, you're going to have an opportunity to teach because we've let our audience know that you're here and they have some etiquette questions. Some of them involve communication. Some of them do not. Are, are you ready to help these folks out? I certainly am. <laughs> Perfect. Well, this first question comes from Roland in Los Angeles. And he writes, let's say someone way smarter and better qualified to talk about science than me is over for a party. And they're talking about science, but repeatedly mispronouncing a scientific term. Oh, no. Do I correct them? (laughs) Well, I've had this experience. And I I didn't make the correction. I said, oh, is that how you pronounce the word? And he was embarrassed in front of other (laughs) scientists. And I, I would suggest, not as a matter of etiquette, but as a matter of not being stupid... That it's not a good idea to correct an expert on what they know better than us. <laughs> that is true. It's also a little bit passive aggressive. So that's a kind of a, that seems to be a yeah. theme in etiquette. You're saying, oh, is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I meant it. I I and I think it was passive aggressive. I think you analyzed me correctly. <laughs> Here's something from Kylie via our website. Kylie writes, "My partner and I are aunt and uncle to more than 15 nieces and nephews." And we despair as we fail to get a thank you of any kind for any gift we send them. Our siblings also fail to thank us on behalf of their kids. How do we indicate that in these times of instant communication methods, thanks should be forthcoming? And how do we do this without offending these people? Or should we just give ourselves more gifts? Give ourselves more gifts. I trampled on the gag at the end. Now, that's a good idea. That's okay. Yeah. See, I think it's—I feel the same way. I— think I'm generous, but the one thing I want to return is a thank you, an acknowledgement that it happened. Maybe that's selfish of me, but that's what I want, damn it. (laughs) There it is. So what would your tactic be? Here's a strategy that might work where you enlist the parents who themselves are recalcitrant Enlist them as magical helpers, Mm -hmm. you know, collaborators. What can we do Uh to help Little Mary learned that she should say mm-hmm. thank you when she's given something. Because some people, like me, don't like it. <laughs> You're basically like, listen. I like that. Yes. we. I know that you're a person, sister or brother, who is a good person. Surely you want your child to behave well. Let's work together to make that happen. Yeah. That's a little formal for me. I, I do it like we're already <laughs> cooperating on this great project. That's right. You assume that they're on board. Yeah. yeah. Um, w- once again, a little bit passive aggressive, right? Because you're kind of saying you know, you, you've raised these feral creatures. I'm getting sick of this instant <laughs> therapy here. Yeah. We are mere radio hosts. All right. Yeah. That was just aggressive. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> we got it. We get it, Al. We've had a breakthrough. We've had a breakthrough. Okay. That's good. I can walk. Here's something from Lindsay from Minneapolis. And Lindsay says, my husband and I have season tickets to our major league soccer team. We often extend invites to friends to join us at a match, but we would like them to cover the cost of their ticket. How do we avoid the awkwardness of the, hey, want to join us for the match? Oh, and by the way, you have to pay situation. Well, you have to put that up front. I have friends who do that. I have two extra tickets for sale. Can you use them? You you don't try to, like, underplay that. If you want their company, then treat them. 
Otherwise, what are you, you, you've got tickets that are worth something, so you want somebody to pay for it. But them. you don't want to seem mercenary. If you lead with the money, then it almost can seem like, I know you might try to weasel out of paying me, so I'm telling you right no, now you can't. No, no. You're, you're honest. You're direct. Etiquette is not pretending to something that you're not going through. It's it's making the rails run more smoothly. Precisely. It's like it's like a social lubricant. Yeah. I can't spring for these tickets for a person like you. How about that? <laughs> P.S. What do you think? I'm made of money? Yeah, yeah. So there you go, Lindsay. From Minneapolis, by the way, where they're known for just being very... <laughs> Super direct. Uh, ...confrontational. So let's see how that works for her. All right. Our last question comes from Susan. In Paoli, Pennsylvania, Susan asks, under what circumstances ought one refuse a nickname? Ah. This is an interesting question because it, it, it assumes that there are people coming up to you all the time giving you nicknames. I, I don't remember <laughs> ever being given a nickname, you know? That's true. Um, however, I did when my children were young enough to go to camp, uh, a representative of the camp came to our house to tell us what a great camp it was which included mm. the information that every morning at 6 o'clock when the lake was freezing cold, everybody had to take a swim in the lake. And then on the first day, everybody would get a nickname that would stick with them for the whole time, and it would be based on some feature of their face or their body or something what? like that, like, hey, freckles. Wow. Hey, hook nose, <laughs> you know. Can you? I said, thanks very much. We won't be giving our children into your care. That's a nightmare. It's like basically we're going to haze your child. Are you ready for that? Wow. Let's do it. Yeah. I, I think when somebody starts nicknaming you, if you don't like it, you tell them. Doesn't that then make it, oh, you don't like it? Well, then I'm just going to nickname you even harder. Well, then, then you're talking to a bully. Then you got to bring the bully apparatus into play. Which is? Sock him in the puss. <laughs> There you have it. Etiquette. This this is exactly. this is etiquette, right? There you go. Susan and Paoli, as I call you, Susie Q. Thanks for sending in your question. <laughs> and Alan Alda, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Yeah, well, they need it. Alan Alda, ladies and gentlemen. His latest book is called If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? And Rico, consider my bucket list checked. Yes, we have long wanted Alan on our show. But ladies and gentlemen, we've got many other thoughtful folks on deck to help you out. If you have an etiquette question you need addressed by a famous person, send it in at the dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now, time to eavesdrop. Keith and Kenny Lucas are a comedy duo with the twist. They're identical twins who literally finish each other's sentences. Their comedy special called On Drugs is on Netflix now. Today we overhear them answer the question twins always get asked, have you ever switched places? We're the Lucas Bros. Uh, I'm Keith. And I'm Kenny. And we look the same. We do. And we're going to tell the story about one of the greatest tricks ever played against the United States government. Seventeen years old in Newark, New Jersey. Yes, uh, we were in the ghetto. Yes, knee deep, Thri- knee deep in the ghetto, thriving, <laughs> I-, I might say. Yeah. And uh, we thought that in order to advance to the next level in the ghetto, you had to get a license yes. and, a- and a car. We were taking a road test, and the first time we we both took it, it was pretty bad. Yeah, we sat in our car before the test. It was raining, mm-hmm. and we were listening to Coldplay. Yep, I remember. Yep. What song was it? Do you remember? <laughs> it was "We Live in a Beautiful World." We live in a beautiful world. Yeah. And you're supposed to practice and all that jazz. 
But we were like, let's just go in and wink it. Maybe use our God-given abilities to pass this test. Yeah. We fell miserably. Yeah. I remember I got into the car. This is Keith. Honestly, when I turned the car on, I just, I kind of just stayed there. Because I didn't know, like, I honestly didn't know how to move the car to accelerate. forward. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know the difference between the brake and the acceleration. So you were dumb. And then the first thing you have to do is... Put your seatbelt on. Put your seatbelt yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think I might have forgotten to do. Keith speaking, you drive forward, and then you turn into a parking lot, and you have to parallel park. Yeah. You did that miserably. I, I did that miserably. I hit yeah. the cone. Yeah. I was doing it for about maybe 15 minutes trying to get in between the cones. And he eventually just put his hand on my shoulders and said... Just move forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't even worry about this part of the test because you failed it. You, you're done with that. Yeah, you already failed this, so let's just move forward. <laughs> it's a really simple it's really test. Simple. <laughs> really simple. In retrospect, all you're doing is going around the block. Yes. That's all you're doing. But for me, it was an existential. Oh, you struggled oh, so badly. It, was, it, was the, it felt like the <laughs> longest hour in my life, but it was only about 10 minutes. And then Kenny went in, and I, I apologized. I, at that point, I thought it was the hardest test in the world. I was like, if Keith struggles with this, I'm probably going to struggle too i had no confidence yeah <laughs> and yeah i made every rookie mistake that yep. you could possibly make so he felt both he of failed us you have to wait two weeks after you fail your road test so we concocted this plan we figured that instead of both of us taking a test it would make more sense for the better driver to take both tests kenny decided he wanted to do it yeah he wanted to take on the task of doing both road tests. I felt as though I could uh, succeed. Since we knew what the test was, we were able to just, like, replicated it. I mean, it takes a lot. You got to plan this shit. Like, yeah. it's not, you can't just do it. You have to, like, think things through. You yeah. got, who's going to lead off and yeah. where are you going to do the switch? It really felt like we were planning a bank robbery when we were <laughs> doing it. We had it all laid out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we put a lot of thought into this. I know. You practice. You went in. Yeah. It was the same guy. I got the same guy, and I don't know. I just felt free. I felt loose. I already felt once, and mm-hmm. I, I nailed it the yeah. first time. What happened then, though? You had my all of my identification. I had man. all of your identification. Uh, and again, we got. I got the same guy, and I was nervous. I, I really thought, thought perhaps... he could tell the difference mm-hmm. between us. Yeah. For some reason, I thought he would be able to differentiate. I assumed my brother and I had different techniques, so I thought he was like... Because he's, he's an instructor. He's a master of driving. He should know, like, the differences. Do you think he was a master? He I was, think he was just a government employee who was mad at his life. And that day, I was waiting on my phone for what seemed like an eternity, and then you called me and said, you pass it. This is something I have been thinking about for almost four years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you tie your self-worth into getting a license and you finally get it, you feel it means you're like the happiest yeah. you could possibly be. How often did you look at the picture when you had Oh, it? I looked at it every second. Like, yeah. it, was, it was my proudest moment that I didn't achieve. You know what <laughs> I mean? Uh, but I, it felt like I achieved it. We, we did this so that we can be cool at school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Kenny we, drives to school for the first time, and it was it was no. just a beautiful. It was a beautiful day in beautiful, the ghetto. Beautiful day in the ghetto. <laughs> and so we drive there. We have a great day. Yeah. Then it's my turn to drive out. Yeah. Because he drives there. I drive, I drive there. Back. That's the fairness. Mm-hmm. I turn the car on. 
I'm about to drive out of the parking lot. It's very similar to the DMV situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to pull out and make a left and, yeah. and yada, yada, yada. So I'm taking a left and... <laughs> a car smashed into my mom's red Astro van. Oh, man. The red Astro van just, like, dragged for about... 20 feet. About 20 feet yeah. just dragging. And I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> At that moment, I was like, holy <laughs> I don't know how to drive. I was like, why did I, why did I let this... <laughs> Drive. I put a I ticket put everybody, time bomb. Yeah, everybody was in danger. Like it, it was first and foremost. I don't understand why you allowed me to. I should not have. Morally speaking, what I did was reprehensible. Reprehensible. I knew you couldn't drive. I didn't know you how know, to drive. I had direct evidence of your inability yep. to to operate a motor vehicle, yep. and I said, you know what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To all the twins out there. Don't use your twin powers for, for, evil. for evil, you know? Like, even if you hate the government, yeah. even if you are in a bad situation, you don't have to use your twin powers for evil. Use it for good. Identical twins, Kenny Lucas and Keith Lucas, or Keith Lucas and Kenny Lucas, a.k.a. the Lucas Brothers, their special on drugs is on Netflix now. All right, everybody, coming up, some folks from ESPN tell us the story of a gambler scorned. Plus, the Wall Street Journal's food editor and I stuff our faces with dumpling delights. Pierogies and gambling. The dinner party devolves (laughs) when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We hope you've refreshed your Arnold Palmer and are ready for more listening enjoyment. Indeed. Because in a few minutes, Rico joins the Wall Street Journal's food editor to chow pierogies. Mm. Plus, we hear a song from pop sensation Maya Kiltron. But before the new music, let's hear about a new podcast. Yes, ESPN, the sports TV network, recently launched a sports podcast called 30 for 30. It's based on their celebrated documentary series of the same name. The first season is five episodes, each dedicated to a different sports story. I sat down with editor Jody Avergan and producer Rose Eveleth to talk about their upcoming episode called Queen of Sorts. It's about gambling. My first question, is playing cards really a sport? <laughs> we're, all, we're already sort of like uh, nudging at the definition of what sports okay. is in our first I season. physical exertion was an element of sports. But it, they played for a, 30 hours nonstop one time. Okay. <laughs> this is a gambling poker story. We are calling it sports. Yeah, for all sure. All right. So, but actually, beyond this being a sports story, this is a revenge story uh, about a card shark or an advantage player as they're known, and her name is Kelly Sun. Yeah. Can you tell me about her? Yeah, so Kelly Sun um, grew up in China. Um, her family was really rich, then the Cultural Revolution happened. Her family lost all their money. She grew up really poor, and then when that ended, her dad got made a lot of money again, and she sort of benefited from that by getting really interested in cards. And so she would go to Macau and play, and then she eventually made her way to Vegas to play, except that at the time, when she first started, she really had no idea what she was doing. She was kind of like me. If I walk into a casino with a lot of money, I will definitely lose all of it. Yeah. And she did lose all of it, and in fact, she wound up in debt to MGM and eventually wound up in jail for debt to MGM. And so when she got out of jail, she decided that she was going to get her revenge on them. And she learned how to do this very difficult thing called edge sorting and basically used that skill later to make millions and millions and millions of dollars. Kelly Sun is known in the business as what's called an advantage player. An advantage player is anybody who turns the advantage to themselves against the house. That could be card counting, which is probably the most famous version of that. So mm-hmm. if you've seen the movie 21, they're card counters. 
But there are people who do things like they figure out when a slot machine is supposed to cash out because it's on a timer and they just sit there and put in, you know, pennies and get the cash out. This is an advantage play. Anything that you do that basically turns the odds in your favor is considered an advantage play. So your episode centers primarily around one big play, as it's called, yes. which I, mm-hmm. I almost wanted to call it a job. Like if you're watching a yeah. crime movie or a caper, it's the job. We, we kind of weren't sure whether to call it a play, a con, which is a fraught word, right. yes. a job, a caper. But yeah, yeah, basically, you know, they did this at a bunch of different casinos, Yes, um, her and her partner, Phil Ivey. But we kind of centered around one at Crockford. So they walk into Crockford's, which is I picture some classy Very British classy. casino out of a movie. I yeah. picture suits and they're yeah. in a private Their room. logo is like a guy in a top hat and tails. And there's like <laughs> all the paintings on the walls are like people on horseback. It's uh-huh. very classy. OK. And so she goes in with her partner. And what goes down? What is So basically for this play to work, and the thing that's kind of wild about it even working in the first place is that they have to ask for a whole bunch of things. They have to make a lot of requests, and the casino has to change the way that they normally play the game in order for this to work. So they ask for a special game. They ask for a special dealer who speaks Cantonese. So Kelly can talk to her so that the pit bosses in the room can't understand. And then basically what she asks the dealer to do is turn the cards in certain ways so that the valuable cards in the game that they're playing, which is Baccarat, go one way and the not valuable cards go the other way. Now, so, pause, I yeah, would like it's to confusing. pause right there. Why, how, when I go to a casino, I, I get a free drink and that's nice. Mm-hmm. But how are they able to tell... So how are they able to pick their well, dealer? Well, you and wire three million dollars, you get whatever you want. And this is where I think this story is goes beyond just being a really interesting caper and teaches us something about the world of like high stakes gambling, mm. which is when you are going in with this much money and someone like Phil Ivey in tow, which uh, was you, her partner, who's a very yeah, famous very poker famous player. Guy, yeah. Yeah. You get to ask for, and you know things are given to you that just no other person would get. So they were asking the dealers to turn the cards, but they they also asked to continue to use the same deck, which seems like to be the key in edge sorting. Talk about why that would matter. Right. So they need a certain kind of card that is cut in such a way that it's not symmetrical. We struggled a lot. So here's the card. Look at this edge and that edge. Yeah. Okay. Basically, when they're making cards, there's diamonds on the back of them. And when they cut the cards, some of those cuts on the diamonds are imperfect. They're different, right? One side On this right side of this card I'm looking at, you can see the entire diamond. On the left side, they've cut the diamond in half. So Kelly can see when those are slightly different. And it is like an incredible skill that she has. She showed it to me and I was like, I can't really. Like, I don't yeah, understand this. Yeah. But she's spent thousands of hours training herself to see this. So when they get the dealer to turn the cards so that some of them go one way and some of them go the other way, they do that as basically sorting those cards into two groups. The valuable cards are one and the non-valuable cards are the other. Then when they come back out, she can see that little edge asymmetry and she can tell you if that's a valuable card or a non-valuable card, which basically means, all told, they have about a 6% edge on the house, which is very, very large. Because the house traditionally has a 1% edge over the right. player, so they end up being able to rake in lots and lots of money. So they pull this off and they make... $10 million? Or... So the, they win $12 million at Crockford's. Yeah. They've won over $10 million other places um, in Atlantic City, in Australia. They've won a lot of places. Um, Crockford's, however, figures out what they're doing and decides that they do not want to pay them. Yeah, so they leave with a receipt to get the money wired to them, and then they're like, we're not wiring you. because yeah, it's, it's not, we, it's not like in on. the movies where you get to go and give them like yeah. 50 black chips and they give you a suitcase of well, well, So we're focusing on, on tactics. Um, but the other thing at play here is Kelly is widely considered one of the most dangerous card players in the world. And part of that is her ability to do this edge sorting. She's been doing the game a long time. But one of her strengths is the ability to manipulate people's perceptions mm-hmm. of her. 
so it, this is one of those stories where when you tell people the whole thing, and then they're like, well, how did they possibly get away with this? And part of it is that um, casinos have this idea that Asians, and particularly Asian women, are stupid and are sucker gamblers. And so when she walks in and she plays that up, they already think that yeah. Kelly's dumb, but then she plays into that quite nicely. So part of it is that they underestimate Kelly. And as we said before, the dealer does everything she asks. At no point does she touch the cards. So is this cheating? What do we say, 30 for 30 editorial team? What do I think? <laughs> yeah, I've been trying to get Rose's opinion on this uh, oh, for a while. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm so stoic. Um, I, I think it's really interesting because I, can, I have oscillated between both sides. On the one hand, like you said, they didn't touch the cards. They didn't mark the cards. The casino could have said no at any given time. The casino knows that these cards can be used in this way. Edge sorting is not new. It's, this is really the first time people have done it in Baccarat. But it's been done in Blackjack. It's been done other places. So the casinos could get cards that aren't printed incorrectly. So it seems like, yeah. on the one hand, the casinos, if you're going to be sloppy, you kind of got to take the knock, right? On the other hand, you know, there's this element of she was talking to the dealer in a language that none of the surveillance people could understand. You know, she and Phil knew something they didn't. I tend to come down on the side that this isn't cheating. If you are dumb enough to change your procedures this much, yeah. I mean, it's kind of your own fault. I, I think the most compelling argument I've heard is that the house always has an edge in any game. Yeah. They are playing an advantage game when you walk into a casino against anyone in any game. They would not set up a game if they didn't have an advantage. And now the instant that someone does the work to tilt that advantage in the other direction, they throw their hands up and claim that it's cheating. And I yeah. just don't find that compelling. <laughs> Jody Avergan and Rose Evelith of the new ESPN podcast 30 for 30. We were discussing the episode Queen of Sorts, which comes out next week. Go sign up at Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, if you haven't already, sign up for the Dinner Party Download podcast as well. Mm -hmm. That way you will have arts, culture, food, and sports completely covered. Add a news show and you'll know everything in the world. Good to go. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Brendan, we have sampled many a dumpling on this show. Uh, mm -hmm. The Bolivian saltania. I remember mantis from uh, Uzbekistan. Don't forget Tibetan momos. Oh, no. The most fun dumpling, to say aloud. <laughs> that was a great one. But Delicious one. Somehow, we haven't talked about the dumpling of my youth, the Polish pierogi which is a, oh, yes. a staple food of my hometown of Pittsburgh, PA. So last time I visited, I went pierogi eating with Beth Cracklauer. She is editor of the Wall Street Journal's James Beard Award-winning off-duty food section. She's also a Pittsburgh native. She took me to Pierogi's Plus, a former gas station that's been a Polish food mecca for almost three decades. Beth came up with an insane idea for how to start our conversation. Yeah, have we, do you want to talk about what a pierogi is? It's, it seems crazy, but there might be some people who don't know. Not everyone's from Pittsburgh, Rico. There, there are any number of different kinds of fillings in a, in a wheat noodle wrapper. They're little half-moon-shaped things that can fit in the palm of your hand. They're typically cooked up with fried onions and a lot of butter. A lot of butter. Very delicious. Um, classic fillings include plain sort of mashed potato, potato and cheese, potato and sauerkraut. Mushroom. Potato figures heavily. Yeah, a lot of potato. And give us an idea of just how important the pierogi is to uh, Pittsburgh cuisine. 
It's huge. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I know that you did too. And if you remember during the 1980s when we were growing up, if you went out to dinner with a few notable exceptions, your options were Italian, Italian, or if you ate in a bar, which to my mind is still the best way to eat in Pittsburgh, it was pierogies. You know, during the hundred or so years that the steel mills were really puffing away at full capacity, there was massive immigration from Eastern and Central Europe, and Eastern European and Central European cuisine came to really define eating in Pittsburgh. And it still is to a large extent. I mean, the Pittsburgh Pirates, I know, have a pierogi race as part of the seventh inning stretch, I believe, or yes. half. Also in the Pittsburgh version of Monopoly, um, one of the game pieces is a pierogi, of course. It is a real emblem of the city, and one I'm quite happy to have as an emblem of the city because they're delicious. Why, of all the Polish places, are we at this joint? Because it's the best. Um, <laughs> I Because I love it so much. It's arguably the most classic. Um, Helen Manorino, who's the owner, emigrated here from Poland when she was 18, I think. But also because it's a real remarkable success story. The neighborhood where we are, McKee's Rocks, is an old mill neighborhood and you know you hear a lot in the national news about Pittsburgh's renaissance and how the universities and the tech sector have rushed in to fill the vacuum left by the exit of heavy industry but this isn't one of the neighborhoods that's totally come along for that and we're sitting here in the middle of what is really a food desert Pittsburgh Actually, among mid-sized cities in the U.S., it has one of the highest percentages of people living in food insecurity in the country. So the fact that this business has thrived here is a testament to Helen as a businesswoman and as a cook. And what she's providing here is a real community service. She's providing food in a place where there aren't a lot of options. I do want to take exception to something you said a minute ago. You said this place has, you know, kind of the most classic Polish cuisine. I will have to say, I've looked at the menu here. It's a lot of pierogies, very, uh, you know, heavy, buttery food. Polish food isn't always like that, though, necessarily. No, absolutely not. There are plenty of carb-heavy, comforting, wonderful dishes, but there's also a lot of vegetables. Foraging is a big part of Eastern European and Slavic food traditions, fermenting of vegetables. There's plenty of light and vitamin-filled food on offer in the Polish pantry as well. That, and possibly even uh, gluten-free in some cases. Possibly some places, not here, I don't think, and that's okay. <laughs> Let's eat some of this stuff. Let's do it. So we have out here some uh, containers of a bunch of different pierogies, all brought out by the chef. My, my name is Helen Manorino. I, I am uh, originally from Poland, but living in this country for bigger part of my life. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the stuff that you brought out here. Some of these uh, pierogi fillings I've never encountered in bars in my life. What would you recommend I start with? Okay, you can start with spinach ricotta. Spinach and ricotta, that's almost uh, an Italian yeah. stuffing, I would think. That's actually uh, how we, we never made spinach ricotta at home. But when I opened the business, an uh, Italian lady came and she said, can you make spinach ricotta? I said, well, I never made it, but I made them, she liked them, and we liked them also, and we put them on the menu. 27 years, and they are still here. <laughs> I'd never thought about it, but it makes it kind of like a miniature calzone in a way. Yes, that's right. All right, I want to try one of these, because in a way this captures Pittsburgh in one bite, because it's both the Polish and the uh, Italian tradition. That's right, that's right. So here we go. 
Oh my God. That is delicious. See how tender the exterior is? Just melts in your mouth. I understand that people will send their fillings to you to wrap in your dough. Mm-hmm. What's the secret to making the dough that um, light? That's a secret. <laughs> Come on. We're both Pittsburghers here. You can just right. tell me. Beth Cracklauer of the Wall Street Journal's off-duty food section and Helen Manorino of Pierogies Plus in Pittsburgh. You can get traditional potato pierogies there, by the way, but she says she prefers the more creative ones, like, for instance, one she stuffs with corned beef, sauerkraut, and Thousand Island dressing. Whoa, a Reuben sandwich dumpling? It is a Reuben sandwich dumpling. Am I dreaming right now? You are not. It exists. The world is beautiful and just got beautiful-er. Yes, Uh, full being the operative word. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. Courtesy of senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, engineer Chris Clark, and our intern Emerald Douglas. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's parties. Toronto's Maya Kiltron says her latest retro funk tune was inspired by a childhood memory of hearing Michael Jackson on the radio for the first time while washing the family car. We suspect Prince was in the mix somewhere, too. This is called Whiplash. Reuben Dumplings. I mean, Bon Appetit. Way back, I was stepping with another, and you walked into my life. One look, and my heart was undercover. It was gone, but right. My eyes were closed before you. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. All right. Nice show. Thanks, well man. I got to get over to napping practice. Napping? That's a sport? Yeah. It's like football, but instead of a ball, there's a pillow, and instead of a field, there's a couch. Huh.